0: All right, so we're back for another great episode of Black Equity Premium. Of course, this will also uh, end up being on our Black Equity Podcast audio edition as well. And I'm excited for this uh, conversation. Um, Actually, one of my favorite books is History of the Black Dollar. I've been wanting to have this conversation for at least about two years now. Uh, So uh, Angel Rich is on the line. Uh, We also call her Commissioner Rich is on the line. Uh, Angel, are you there?
1: Yes, I'm excited to talk to you today. Thanks for having me.
0: You're very welcome. So for those who don't know, uh, what inspired you to uh, write the history of the Black Dollar and what is inside of the history of the Black Dollar?
1: Well, yeah, long story short, um, a few months before I wrote the book, I started I started re-reading a bunch of Black history books. Um, I just kind of sat down and, you know, went through W.B. Du Bois, Melba Bates, uh, Frederick Douglass, all the great heroes. And when I got to Harriet Tubman, I discovered that while she was alive, the Blacks were making 67 cents on the dollar, Mm. and uh, she protested against that and refused to receive her wages pretty much until her death as a result of this, and had the entire Black Union uh, army protest, which she started and helped to, um, to, to save the entire Civil War. So she didn't feel as though that the very people that was leading um, the success of the Civil Rights uh, War, that they weren't getting paid equally. I also realized that that's the same amount we make on the dollar today Mm. so when I thought about both of those eras and dichotomies I said well what happened in between how did we go from 67 cent we bounced up to about 80 cent for men in the 80s and about 73 cent I think was the peak for black women and then it went on back down again um, with affirmative action and people wanting to fit in and all these various different things. So I wanted to tell the story of not only what happened in between Harriet Tubman and present day, but what happened to the very first slave that ever entered America? What was the first dollar that ever touched a slave's hand? What did we do with it? And how has that led to how we deal with money today?
0: Mm. So, of course, people are going to hear this episode. They're going to read the book. Um, so my, my question is about today. Um, where do you currently think the black dollar stands today? As of today, where we are today, where, where do we stand?
1: Well, I believe for black men, it's about 67 cents on the dollar. For black women, it's 63 cents on the dollar. Um, the average net worth for a black person is zero. For a black woman, is negative five. Um, in DC, in particular, the wealth gap between blacks and white is about eighty times. I think it's eighty-four times to be exact. Um, it's about thirty-five hundred dollars for black people, um, and in DC, which is one of the wealthiest deep black places, I think it's the wealthiest black place in the country, actually. We have the top three black wealthiest counties uh, surrounding D.C. And D.C. itself, it's called Chocolate City for a reason. Right. And uh, we were also the very first slaves freed an entire year before the rest of the country. So you got to take all of that in consideration when you're thinking about D.C. We're also the number one most gentrified city in the country as well. So uh, we, to me, D.C. almost truly embodies the nucleus as well as the breadth of the black community all in one city. Mm. From the beginning of slavery with us being the most freed, to us then being one of the most educated and the wealthiest. We started the entrepreneurship movement in D.C. even with my parents all the way to being the most gentrified city. We also have the most um, computer science graduates. So everything you could talk about and think of in D.C., we also have one of the biggest housing problems. Um, Jesse Jackson went across the country and said, if we can fix D.C., we can fix the rest of the country. Um, So every almost problem that you can think of or solution or good thing that has come out of the Black community, all of it exists in D.C. in one spot. So to have a wealth gap of eighty-four times and sort of at our highest, our average net worth is thirty five hundred in DC, while whites are at a like two hundred and eighteen thousand, something like that. The average cost of an apartment is about fourteen hundred in DC. So and you know, the stimulus checks is maxed out at twelve hundred. Right. So like um there's it's a very weird situation to be black in America right now.
0: Let me ask you this. When you came across all these statistics, you started realizing that really not much has changed, you know, since you studied, uh, you know, what Harriet Tubman was saying. How does that make you feel? How does, you know, as you're walking into these rooms and you're having these conversations, uh, you know, about your book and about the different platforms you have, of course, we'll get into one of the other platforms in a second. Uh, as we, uh, as you're talking to these different individuals, how do you feel walking in that today? you're I mean, looking at the history, but it's al- almost the present day uh you know dealings of the black dollar
1: You know, I'm slowly starting to feel like Obama's last speech, like I tried to tell y'all some black yeah, talk, but no I think it's um you know it kind of goes back to the reason I even wrote the book. I think a lot of people are misinformed. <laughs> You know, um, I, I give a speech a lot where I ask people to raise their hand if they read the diary of Anne Frank, and almost everyone always raises their hand. Right. And it's because I say a duh because it's required reading. Now, raise your hand if you can tell me of a book that's required reading across every school in the country that presents the view of a child slave or even Jim Crow. Mm. What book is that? I
0: don't think they're going to
1: find one. It doesn't exist. Mm. So, two things go along with that. One, I asked this at Harvard University, at the School of Education. And I said, I'm at Harvard, at the School of Education. If you all don't know this, then who does? Right. Also, the state of Illinois did a research study on my book. And they found it doesn't exist. There is no book like it. And my book is the first book that presents that type of perspective. They were actually kind of pushing back on it at first to integrate it into the library. But upon doing the research, they was like, oh gosh, another black book. But as they did the research study, realized how objective and unbiased it was, as well as providing the chronological story that we do not have in current U.S. history classes, they then recommended it to be integrated into all libraries and schools across the country. So I believe from Black people as well as other people that are across the world, our story has not been shared from a harmonious perspective where we all have the same shared perspective of exactly what happened. I've had roommates walk into my room at Hampton with Frederick Douglass on the wall and a picture of Africa and asked me what both of
0: those were. Wow.
1: In real life.
0: That's crazy.
1: At Hampton University.
0: Mm. So,
1: clear, and she was from Roanoke. And she was like, we only learned about Martin Luther King. And that was it. That was the extent of her black history education.
0: Mm. So,
1: uh, you know, I think it's sad. I think that if we are not all reading from the same book, how can we be on the same page?
0: Mm, You're right. Um, One of the things that I'm wondering is what happens to to the, the future of the black dollar? You know, if we don't understand our history, how do we change it? What type of solutions can we put in place? What type of things can we put in place in order to change the future of the black dollar?
1: You know, I actually am kind of hopeful about that. Okay. Um, that's one of the things I spend my time and every day working on. As soon as I wake up in the morning, from the moment I go to sleep at night, is one of the main reasons I made it a goal to be the first tech entrepreneur on Breakfast Club and get on there and, you know, secretly just want to talk about money and wealth and how to be able to educate people. I'm happy to see that it has kind of started a theme where other people are coming on talking about money and wealth and different things like that. And I think it, it has to be more things like that that gets integrated into the culture. You know, before Nipsey passed, um, I had a book that I was working on called mental wealth. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard Charlemagne say that on breakfast club, but that's actually my book. Okay. And so Charlemagne was writing the forward and Nipsey was writing the introduction. I actually was supposed to receive it a few days before he passed. Hmm. And I think, um, and we're still we're still talking to some other people right now. I think doing things like that to be able to uh, bring financial literacy into the vernacular that people understand. I'm in the middle of releasing a financial literacy guide as well, um, called Wealthy Life Financial Literacy Guide. It will be it will be out by May first for sure, and so um, on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, and basically. We have been named, you know, the best financial literacy product and the curriculum has been adopted into the family engagement policies of the Department of Education and we've been more successful than other companies because it's written in the vernacular that people understand. We did our research pilots in the hood. Right. In schools, people wouldn't go into, you know, where I had to deal with rats while I'm doing these research studies. People ain't gonna go do that. But if you're actually trying to impact the 3 billion people in poverty or the 1.5 billion of them that's in poverty that have smartphones, you have to go where they are. You have to put it in the language that they speak. You have to make it into the activities that they would normally do. Um, So then that leads me to our other component where we build FinTech products. We've invented a game called Credit Stacker. Mm -hmm. Um, That also is the number one education app in 14 countries, top five in 40 countries, Uh, best financial literacy product in the country by the white house department of education jp morgan chase and we said okay well since candy crush is doing so well why not invent a game that's similar to candy crush but instead of swap around candy you swap around credit types to be able to pay off your debt Mm -hmm. um so we just released that uh as a pro version again about three days ago uh where we've now added in back-end analytics uh and we're going to continue to update it where we're making it a plug and play product for schools as well as parents so they can monitor what their students are doing. And we give like little achievement badges and things like that. Lastly, we have a new product that'll be out in like June or July called Credit Fixer. I'm not going to go too much into detail, but we'll be directly improving people's credit scores. And directly uh, helping um, helping them to pay off their debt. So, we through my research as well as technology development, what I have learned is, or what I have, what what my role is, what I what I can contribute is to be able to leverage technology to persuade people to increase their financial acumen and behavior. You know, I'm the co-author of the FDIC Unbanked Underbank study. Also went into the hood and did that. And uh, was pulling homeless people out of McDonald's. And right, so right. Uh, it was like, what the heck are you doing, girl? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I was like, trust me, trust me. It's going to work out. Trust me. <laughs> we need real information. Trust me. They're like, you bringing drug addicts in here. Yes, that's who we're targeting, right? <laughs> we need to talk to the drug addicts, okay? Right, right. they the McDonald's. Okay, so <laughs> it's a true story, so, so but it's one of the best resource studies that FDIC ever had, right? And we got some the real truth. information, yeah. And so it's like you have to meet people where they are, and so in order to get real results, you have to talk to real people. Also, I did the Obama's um veteran study. They were talking to all type of officers. I said, don't bring me a single officer. I met with one general the entire time. Um, and that's because they just insisted that I talk to one. But other than that, I said, bring me as, as many enlisted people as you can find. Nobody else had did the research study like that. And to my amazement, they actually implemented my uh, recommendations. They created the Corporate American Consortium to hire and educate best. They put Skype centers in different places across the world. They extended the GI Bill, all the various different things that I recommended. So um, the moral to the story is you can't force things down people's throat. You have to meet them where they are, and then you have to leverage fun and technology Um, With some type of incentive, whether it's intrinsic for their own personal motivation or extrinsic for McDonald's, um, they have to be motivated to then do this, believe that they can, increase their confidence, and then actually show them the actions to take to move their money. And then people will do that. Um, I will say over the last 10 years, there's been... I expected this out of the crisis. That's why I quit my job and started a financial literacy company. I expected this. Since the crisis, people have a deep yearning to be able to have their own financial knowledge. I think now with the coronavirus happening, and I did a piece in Forbes uh, last week, Mm -hmm. I think that's going to heighten it even more because now you're considering those emergency savings. Now it's not only just about your 401k and your investments. Now it's literally about your survival. Right? Can can you make it three months without getting paid? Like you didn't you didn't need all those cheeseburgers. You didn't need that expensive toothpaste. You didn't need all them shoes. Can you can you pay your rent this month? Mm -hmm. Like that's what it's coming down to.
0: For everyone that was you know staying you know paycheck to paycheck. It's this idea of, oh shoot, well, maybe I need to own a business. Maybe I need to have investments. Maybe I need to think bigger than what I was thinking before. So and the silver lining, if we want to find one, is if you don't wake up now, I don't know what else is going to cause you to wake up.
1: I just said that I have a friend that as a result of the coronavirus, uh, they're now homeless. Yeah.
0: They're now
1: living in their car. Very surreal for me to hear, and I was like, "Okay, is this?" I literally said to him, um, I, "I, I'm not the type of person that want to kick somebody when they down." But I'm like, "Okay, what's the plan? Right? Like, right. what are you, what are you doing? Like, is this the moment that you finally wising up? Is this where you stop living paycheck to paycheck and you actually start saving some money? Do you hear what I've been screaming for the past few years?" You know so i think that you know god what is it Spare the rod spare the child something like that
0: mm-hmm. something like that
1: god got a funny way to show a tough love sometimes mm-hmm. and from the very moment that this virus happened i was like oh this is just god course correcting the world right. because they have been going left for quite some time now
0: this just just sped know? everything up just sped it up quicker because we already headed this direction
1: and it just was like kaboom you know and I think that while in the short term it shakes stays up you know unemployment is at an all-time high but guess what else is at an all-time high I met with my Indian developers this morning they said their requests have increased 60 to 70 percent you know what I mean people starting businesses right now yeah. developing stuff you know um people might end up getting evicted but hey you gonna get evicted by the end of this year it might as well, lose
0: now go for it all
1: might as well go do it right now you got an excuse to go live with your mother that's the coronavirus da, 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 da. as opposed to struggling through it and then getting evicted in
0: september
1: right before you in september
0: right
1: so it's like um i don't know in a way i do think it's good i think it also is cleansing the earth you know the uh the skies above China. I can't wait for them to show the images above America. They haven't showed those yet. Yeah. They keep showing them above China. So I think it's doing a great job of just cleansing the world mentally, spiritually, financially, environmentally, all of those very different things that we needed to take a pause on. You know, bringing families together, domestic violence and child abuse is also up. But that might also, in a weird way, peak it so that it can go down mm-hmm. it, 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 things have to peak in order for them for to receive it that,
0: yeah mm-hmm. yeah you
1: know
0: so yeah you spent you spent in game
1: um <laughs> i'm gonna cut myself off i can keep going can keep...
0: <laughs> no no definitely keep going i i guess what what a lot of people may be wondering is you know you write this this book history of the black dollar you put together the credit stacker you also got another app coming How did you get into this world where you actually care about this? Because obviously there's been people who said, yeah, there's something wrong here. And then they just went about about their their journeys in their life and never, you know, dived into it. You decided to dive in. What made you dive in?
1: Well, um, I actually had a vision when I was six years old. And I was sitting on my back porch at my great grandmother's house. And I received a vision from God and it showed me my entire life Mm. everything in that vision has come to pass I have lived my life according to that vision and the vision was I didn't quite know the definition of financial literacy at six but it was basically like freeing people and helping people with their money like that was going to be my life for my entire life and um and it's weird now to actually, you know, be globally recognized. But at the time of receiving that vision, I was like, what are you talking about, God? You know, like, but it's weird saying it to you now. You actually see it happen. So, so that's where when you receive a vision and a message from God, you better follow it. Mm. You better sure enough follow it because that's your life. You know, a lot of people try to focus on luck and different things like that. I I don't really believe in luck. I believe that you, you have a destiny and God is trying to send you down that destiny and you can do a bunch of things to get yourself off that course I kind of look at it like a string; like he's pulling you towards your goal it's up to you how much you're going to steer off of that along the way and some people end up dying or getting injured along the way of them disobeying what God is trying to lead them towards Um there was only really one period that I wasn't focused on it. And that was the period between um, when God came back to me again from six to my senior year of college and told me that I needed to go off and do this thing. I was driving down the street. That's a whole nother conversation. And I said, okay, Lord, I got my job offer from Prudential." And I said, okay, give me three years. Let me get that on my resume. And then I'll go back and I'll concentrate on this financial literacy company. Almost three years to the day, God came back again. It was basically like, What's good? I bust out laughing, um, quit my job, and never looked back. And so that is the honest truth of how I even know to do all of these various different things. I'm I'm genuinely led. Also, my entire family sells life insurance. Okay. So I guess that's where. The initial seed even came from for me to even have this different type of knowledge, and then my mother fed it by providing me with different business books. So by the fifth grade, I had pretty much read almost all of Og Mandino's books: mm-hmm. The Greatest Salesman in the World, uh, Outwitting the Devil, The Spellbinder's Gift. I read The Spellbinder's Gift like three times by the fifth grade. So I did my book report my first book report, we had to start doing book reports in the fifth grade was on Og Mandino, the greatest salesman in the world. Mm. Everybody else was bringing in Dr. Seuss. <laughs> I looked around and said, who's Dr. Seuss? <laughs> I didn't even know who Dr. Seuss was. So, <laughs> so I think from the very beginning, I was just on a different level. Right. Of, um, of how I was going to live my life.
0: You said you saw this vision of you'll be able to free people uh, by teaching them about money, does money equal freedom? Do you yes. do you see it that way? Oh, break that down for me.
1: Yes. Okay. Right. So the United Nations has, I think, twenty three sustainability goals. Mm-hmm. I think number one or two is poverty. Um, uh, either hunger. I can't remember which one or two is either hunger or poverty, but those are the one and two. Okay. I've gone through them. Seventeen out of the twenty-three sustainable goals relate to money.
0: Wow. Money makes the world go round.
1: And if I was to stretch it, the ones that I'm not including, like safety and health,
0: directly I could also boil down to money. Right.
1: So I say yes. In order to have a sustainable free life. You need to have money. That is that is unfortunately how the world is now set up. You know, unless we all just go back to living off the land and different things like that, and even then, they still had the barter system, which is an ancient form of money.
0: Right. It's still money.
1: It's still money.
0: Right. Something so you goes. Can't, down.
1: You can't get around it. You know, even for Judas to sell out price, they had to pay him what they 23 pieces of silver mm-hmm. so it's it's money that's that's what makes the world go round and when i've studied the bible in this i'm also working on a christian financial literacy book i'm taking bible verses and breaking them down into money um god never shied away from money either you know god said you know when they asked him about taxes he said "Who who whose face is on it is Caesar's face not on it you know to give Caesar his money
0: mm. you know and then
1: you got the um the other people where I think it's called the I forgot what that was called but basically where he gave them each um 10 shillings and one buried it in the ground one held on to it and one doubled it the one that doubled the money he ended up blessing him the one that held the money he left him alone and the one that blew the money he ended up punishing them right so god has always respected money you know um and he believes that when you get when he gives you something you should multiply it that's where people mess up at you should be multiplying your money in god's name just like when he gives you these various different gifts you know, you should dance in God's name, sing in God's name, praise in God's name, make money in God's name. Sometimes you might even have to murder in God's name. You know, <laughs> David and Goliath. Right, right. That's where people get it twisted, you know? And so, um, yeah, I think I think people have that uh, very confused.
0: And so with money equaling freedom you're saying well i have my financial literacy company so then you can be well uh well prepared to understand how money is working how money works in the system what is one of the biggest things that people don't know about money
1: how to spend it Mm. it's a science to it people (laughs) tend to just spend money they don't, they don't. This could be a whole nother show just on that one question. Uh,
0: I felt it. I felt very it. powerful. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay, I'm gonna try to be brief
0: and not go into take too much. Take time, ahead. take your time.
1: Basically, people don't make a plan for how they're gonna spend their money. I'll give you a very basic example toothpaste. You're going to have to brush your teeth for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Toothpaste takes about two to three years to expire, if that. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you buy toothpaste in bulk? Right. Why why wouldn't you try to buy as many tubes of toothpaste at one time? Now, if you're just the type of person that you need your variety of toothpaste, that's cool. But what I would suggest is either identify one brand that you could get the love for six months to a year, or maybe you divide it into two brands. Whatever it is, whatever your plan for your toothpaste is, there needs to be a plan. It doesn't need to be every time you run out of toothpaste, every time you run out of deodorant, every time you run out of toilet tissue, all these things that you're going to need for the rest of your life. All of a sudden, you got to go buy it. It sh- that should have been planned for the entire year. Let's say for every tube with toothpaste, you're overspending $1 or $2. Right. Let's, let's call it $2, okay? So you're overspending $2. Let's say you buy a tube a month. That's now $24 at the end of the year that you've overspent. Guess what that twenty four dollars could have went towards? Two and a half Netflix subscriptions. Mm. You're right. So now you just paid for Netflix as well as overpaid for your toothpaste. Mm. When you could have planned out your toothpaste because you know you're gonna need it, save that twenty four dollars in your finite amount of money and put it towards your Netflix subscription. Mm. You ain't do nothing different but playing your money. You're you ain't right. make a single extra dollar. You just moved it around. Now imagine that you doing this on your car note. Now you overspending two hundred dollars a month. Okay, now that's twenty four hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. Guess what that could have went towards. That could have went towards a down payment on a house. Right. So now you took $10,000
0: to make your down payment on a
1: house, but you could have had $2,400 if you had properly financed your car note, if you were on top of that. If as soon as you knew you could, you refinanced it. You probably was on top of things. You got the right interest rate. You shopped around to the various different stores. You you haggled the dealer down to the, to the amount that you wanted it to be at. You purposely planned out your card note. You knew exactly how much you were going to spend. You knew you had that other $2,400, and you put that towards your house. You know how much greater people's lives would be if they just simply took these steps? to plan out things.
0: And all it really takes is you being strategic <laughs> on the front end, so you don't have to worry on the back end.
1: Everybody is too busy being reactive. I've never understood that. I've never understood it. I'm the first person at Hampton to turn in my college thesis on the first day of class. Why am I waiting to the end of school year? I know it's due. I, 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 okay, so the moment I got to Hampton freshman year – it's this big thing that everybody tends to fail at, called your college thesis. Why wouldn't I start working on that freshman year? By junior year, almost everybody in that class was paying me to write their paper for them. Mm. So the time I got to the class my senior year, I turned it in on the first day of class. Smart. She then made me the editor of everybody else's work, and I then got extra credit, and I didn't have to do nothing the entire semester but read other people's papers. Like, I just, I would never. Reverse engineering. (laughs) I I just don't get it. I always say, yeah, I'm smart. I got a mental level IQ, but I really don't think that's the secret to my success. I really believe the secret to my success is how proactive I am with things. How I got my job at Prudential, I simply showed up 40 minutes early. (laughs) I got there before everybody else. A couple of people got there five, ten minutes early. I got there forty minutes early. Traditional showed up twenty minutes after me. I helped them set up the room. Who do you think they liked the best by the end? After a hundred other kids came in, who do you think they remembered? Like I just—it's so simple. It's so simple. So if you just think of these things ahead of time, plan them out properly, keep a budget. Monitor everything that you're spending money on and then reallocate to where you can save that money and put it to something else that you also will have to pay. You know you're gonna have to pay your mortgage. You know you're gonna have to pay your Netflix bill. So start figuring out that's ten dollars a month. So you need to figure out where you can take ten dollars a month from other places. That's 120. You just pay for your whole Netflix bill. You're watching Netflix for free now, just because you rearranged your money but you got
0: the same paycheck. So, it sounds like it's about being a good shepherd over what is yours and, you know, paying close attention. This idea that I keep hearing in the financial literacy space that you should be paying yourself first. Do you have any thoughts on that?
1: Yes. um, I definitely think that, uh, Hold on, I think my pop burning. One second. Um, what was the question you asked me? We'll do that over.
0: So the, uh, you know, financial literacy is very important. The question or the comment that I keep hearing is, you know, you should be paying yourself first. What are your thoughts on paying yourself first?
1: Okay, I believe you should pay yourself first for self care. But in a very finite type of way. And one of the things my mother taught me that was very valuable, um, she said to take $100 every paycheck. So that's $200 a month and go buy new clothes. And that was how she taught me to pay myself first. and it, And it wasn't for fun. It was an investment because I didn't have much business clothes. So she said, the number one thing you're going to need to continue to succeed and make more money in business is business clothes. Right. So take a hundred dollars every two weeks and go buy some clothes. Other than that, you should. Oprah also says your hair. Um, that you should never skip on your hair. That keep your hair up. I would also agree with that as well. Um, I might also throw in eyebrows. Okay. Other than that, I would say basic hygiene. You know, your toothpaste, your deodorant, different things like that. Once you check those boxes, I then get real straight. Where you need to have, where I, well, my definition of pay yourself first, then turns into, you need to have at least three months of emergency savings. That's that one. I don't want to see, I want to see not a single stake. Until you got three months of emergency savings, okay? You better enjoy all the flavors of ramen, okay? And that's something that fortunately I did and I stuck to From my very first paycheck I put half my money to the side I a single day that I worked at Prudential. And that's how I freed myself. That's how I paid myself first. I only lived off of half my paycheck for all three years that I worked at Prudential. Then I took the other half of that paycheck and I divided it into eight different savings and investments accounts to be able to grow my money so that I could keep my promise to God and be able to quit in three years. So, um, and I had $100,000 saved up and I did about 14% on average um, with my investments. I did pretty well. Dope. Uh, so, that's first of all. So, you need your emergency savings. Then you need six months to a year of personal savings. That's another thing a lot of people skip over. Even wealthy people, they might have three months of emergency savings, but they skip that one year of personal savings, and then they start going into investments and life insurance and all this other stuff. You need three months of emergency, one year of personal. As exhibited by the coronavirus. Right. Okay. Then from there... I would say you need life insurance um, as well as some type of investment account for you to then start making your investments. Once you have all of those things set up, and if you have kids, you need to also have that for your kids as well. Okay. Once you have all of those things together, and now you got disposable income, knock yourself out. Pay yourself first. You know, you need to allot what's that's going to be. I then also, because I'm serious about my money and allocating things, I then also have a charity bucket because that's how I get out of not paying taxes. I give way more to charity than they would ever charge me in taxes. So I keep a record of everything that I do for charity, every piece of clothing that I give away. um, Whenever I do speeches where people don't pay me, um anything that I'm giving away, I keep a record of it. So when I go to file my taxes, I'm able to itemize those items and be able to get all my money back um, because I've already given it in, in charity. So I also keep that bucket as well for taxes. Another thing people don't do that's so easy. Um so basically. Once you have those things, then you can decide, like, I like massages. So then I said, okay, this is my happy thing. I will allow myself, I think right now, before I was on 100 I think right now I'm at 200 I got way more money now, though. But um, so now i allow myself $200 a month for massages. But even with that, I'm strict. I've now even signed up for, I had a Massage Envy membership, and now I have a Zeal membership. So I pay a monthly amount, and it gives me a certain amount of massage credits, and then I'm able to build up those massage credits and have the people come to my house. I'm also saving gas and time and mental space by having them come to my house. So even for the stuff that I'm doing for fun, I've also optimized to get the most out of it and to pay the least for it. Uh, And then from there, I still even make a deal offline with Zeal people to come to my house and save even more. so it's like once again going back to my original statement people just spend money you have to plan how you're spending money you have to make sure it's something right now that I need to pay that's $2000 I know I need to pay it I know that I know that I need it but even still the structured person that I am I'm not allowing myself to pay it right now because I need to fully sit down look at all the different options Look at the ripple effect that this $2,000 is going to cost. Look at exactly what I'm getting for it. Look at, is there another way I can get it done for cheaper? Even though I've kind of already done that initial due diligence. But before I actually click pay, I'm going to do that again. That's how serious I take planning out my money.
0: I like that. It's it's being very intentional. Um, It's taking control back. Because everybody designed, you know, through advertising, through marketing, to take away your dollars. Everybody wants your dollars in, in their hand. And the method you have is automatically going to filter that out and say, no matter what you put in front of me, I still have to do a self-check of what goes out of my world. And so I, I love that, that approach. So thank you for sharing that.
1: Absolutely. You know, and sometimes I make it look fun. Like, um, I went to Jamaica recently with some family members and we ended up spending $600 in a gift shop and they were like, and it was four of us and they were like, Oh my God, Angel, this such impulse buying. I can't believe you're doing this. And I was, and I had to think to myself and I looked at all the items and I went Certain, I have certain items that I buy when I go to a different country. I need two uh, cups. I need two shot glasses. I need three magnets. <laughs> I need a t-shirt. I need a pair of shorts. It's literally things that I have a checklist in my head right. as to what I need. So I went through each thing. It was like, I intended to buy this. I meant to buy this. I meant to buy this. And, blah, blah, blah. and they were like, oh, wow. And I was like, I just make it look fun. Right. So... I'm not even saying it got to be boring and you can't have fun. You just need to have a plan. And then I also, what they didn't get and what I knew, that was the only time I was going to go shopping the whole time we were there.
0: Right.
1: Also a part of my strategy. I'm doing it at one time. I negotiated with the gift shop man. I made him give me 10% off on my entire order because I was buying so much. A lot of people, they tourists, they go out to another country. Oh, I like that. Oh, I like that. No. I'm going to go talk to the cab driver. I want you to take me to the most quality, cheapest place that you got <laughs> where I can get all the stuff that's going to be on the main strip, but it's going to be the real price and not the tourist price. Right. I'm going to negotiate with the person. I'm going to have all my bags at one time and I'm going to have it all on one receipt at one time. And then I can store it somewhere and I don't even got to worry about that the rest of the trip. Right now I can just go and enjoy and do other different type of things. So even when I'm on vacation, even when people think I'm being impulsive, I'm still not like it's still a plan involved in it.
0: I love it. I love the uh, strategic approach to everything you do. I think part of your strategic approach uh, to how you've been managing your empire has uh has led people to call you the next uh Steve Jobs am I, am I saying that correctly
1: yes that's correct
0: okay and so where did that come from uh what were your thoughts when you started hearing um uh hearing that message being uh put on to you and um you know what are your, what, what was your uh, initial response to that yeah
1: so you know personally i genuinely do love it And, um, you know, so I won a Google competition. Google had gathered the top 30 black women across the country. I ended up winning first place. And one of the, thank you. One of the judges, um, was a, was a, uh, what do you call it? Like a journalist for Forbes was a writer for Forbes. Um, and she was like, I'm gonna do an article on you. I was excited just in the fact that she said that I had no idea she was going to name me the next Steve Jobs or any of that other stuff. So, you know, a few months goes past, nothing really happens, and all of a sudden, one day, I log on to Facebook, and my Facebook has exploded, and I'm like, what the heck is going on? And um, Forbes has named me the next Steve job, so I just kind of went throughout the house screaming, you know, like, couldn't believe it, like, you know, and my life has not been the same since that day. Since that day, my life has been completely different. My initial reaction and how I feel about it is, like I said, I love it. Um, when the movie came out, I think a year or two before that, I sat in the movie theaters for about 30 minutes afterwards in astonishment because I had never felt as though I'd ever seen anybody that I could see myself in that, that resonated with me. Um, I had never seen somebody as close to a role model As to who I was and what I was trying to do as Steve Jobs. And I was like, and I'd always felt like I was weird, quirky, you know, and seeing him and how he lived his life, I was like, oh my God, I'm not crazy. I'm a genius. (laughs) So it was like, it was kind (laughs) of like, I like like, that. I like that. It was, and I just sat there like, so that was my own personal experience, nothing to do with Forbes. Right. So then fast forward, I never even mentioned that to the lady, never even told her that I like Steve Jobs, nothing. And so she then names me that, um, and, you know, Forbes and itself, because it's a whole legal department and da-da-da-da-da, and, you know, a lot of Black people had issues with it. And I, quite frankly, feel as though that's ridiculous. Nobody had any issues with people calling me the next Oprah my entire life. Mm. My entire life, I was called the next Oprah. I never really identified with Oprah. I love Oprah. I think she's fantastic. I think she's a great businesswoman, different things like that. But what she does and what I do is not the same. I'm definitely more like Steve Jobs than I am Oprah. So I think for people... To all of a sudden saying how they trying to compare you to that old white man you your own person this that and third y'all ain't had no problem when they was comparing me to a middle-aged black woman
0: and you're saying you're more like her when it comes uh, more like him when it comes to the industry you're in and the type of actual work you're doing on a day-to-day basis that's that's where you're coming from
1: yes as well as the personality so i feel as though they're actually being racist
0: mm. I feel like if, if I was a really
1: just straight saying I feel like black people are being racist
0: because their only issue with him is that he's white. That he's white.
1: Okay? And then and then people want to say, "Oh, you your own person. You you you're angel rich." Once again, you don't say that to me when people call me Oprah. Yeah. You have no issue with it. So, another thing, I'm going to take I'm going to take it real deep right now. And okay. I ain't never said this publicly, but this is how I feel. I feel like And this is real deep. So I got to get my thoughts together. I feel like people are doing a disservice to the Black culture. And I want people to hear me real carefully, clearly. I don't want nobody to twist my words with what I'm about to say. I felt as though my entire life, I was limited by people calling me the next Oprah. That was the only person people would identify me as. Then as time went on, it was Condoleezza rice. I'm not a Republican. But because she a high-powered black woman, I'm kind of Lisa Rice. Then Michelle Obama. Okay, I'm cool with Michelle Obama, you know. You know, but she also is not a businesswoman. She is a lawyer and was married to a president. None three of those women are me. But those are the three people I've been called my whole life. And I felt limited. So basically what you're telling me as a child is that if there's no black woman that has achieved this, then I can't do it.
0: Mm. It has to
1: be some black woman that I have to be the next of in order for me to be inspired and feel as though I can do this. Now, let me tell you, and I swear, that when, when i twist my words, when I was named the next Steve Jobs, it was freeing. It was a major white magazine saying that a little black girl could do something that a major white man could. It released the black woman's shackles off of me. I feel as though Black people in their crazy, unwoke way are trying to put the shackles back on me by saying I can't be compared to the next Steve Jobs. They're, they're, in my mind, they're trying to be so woke but being so backwards at the same time that we have finally broke through where they have said that this Black girl can do this, what a white man has done. But people want to skip past that, that we've actually been fighting for. That's literally what we've been fighting for, is equality and equivalence. Mm-hmm. So now, forget that. We don't, we don't need that. You your own person. And that's where I feel as though this whole Black Woke movement has gone too far. They've, they've missed the point. They've passed the exit. And it's like, instead, what I expected was for Black people to celebrate to come together I could have easily I didn't have to start Black Tech Matters and start being as black as I was and all these various different things I wanted the world to feel it I wanted the world to know a black person had been named the next Steve Jobs because people had been saying that we were not equivalent before I got named the next Steve Jobs the theory across the tech industry was that black people could not create the same technology products as white people So by Forbes naming me the next Steve Jobs, that dismissed that theory. Where black people messed up is instead of supporting that, and a lot lot do, Mm -hmm. but instead of fully supporting that as a culture, it became a divisiveness where some people was like, you know, they happy for me. And some people feel like I need to drop the whole thing and just focus on being angel rich. Well, that puts me right back where I started. And right back to people calling me the next Oprah. So now y'all back to being okay?
0: Hmm. I think a lot of the issue is people want to feel like they can define you and uh, have some type of control over you because they may not be able to be happy with what they have going on. So they have to live through your story. And so anyway, I don't want to get, you know, Yes, I feel you. That's a
1: that's a very fair that's a very fair point, and it's funny that you say that. That was actually very wise. My number one enemy that started all this is a huge fan of Steve Jobs, and mm. apparently he was mad that I was the one that got named the next Steve Jobs. It was was also exactly what you just said. You want to be mad that I got named the next Steve Jobs, but you don't want to be named the next Steve Jobs.
0: That part too. That part too. <laughs> a lot of people wanted that that moment to be theirs. And that's not what it was. And so instead of embracing you, they push push back. But I do think that only propels you further and uh, allows conversations like this to exist and change culture. Um, for those who are intrigued by your story and want to be a part of your movement, I think I even get uh, some of your emails for from your 757. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. You know what yeah. I'm talking about. Um, I, I like being part of everything you're doing. So for, for people who want to be a part of your world and the things that you're doing, how can they get your book? How can they be a part of a uh, credit stacker? And then how can they be uh, potentially partnering with you in the future?
1: absolutely so I'll, I'll run through them um so history of the black dollar is available on amazon as well as Barnes and noble and it's slowly being available everywhere books are sold okay um you can also buy them in bulk or signed copy directly off of our website historyoftheblackdollar.com and we also have some merchandise on there as well um you can download our game credit stacker we uh, just released it uh, as a uh, the new version. Um, that's now a paid version, so it's $9.99. Still extremely reasonable mm-hmm. um, for financial literacy and credit literacy. Um, so that's available on Google Play and iOS. And stay tuned for our textbook that is coming out as well. um, Wealthy Life Financial Literacy Guide, that will be out May 1st, available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And last but not least, uh, follow me on Instagram at angelrich27.
0: Angel Rich, thank you for coming on the Black Equity uh, Premium Channel. Uh, We look forward to distributing it to our paid members and then in the future, uh, having a portion of this conversation on the Black Equity Podcast. People are. People need to hear this conversation so then they can uh, act accordingly. We have to realize who our leaders are. We may not have a lot of leaders in the culture, but when we have a leader, we have to know who to follow. So thank you for being that leader. Thank you for showing up. Do not be a stranger. Whenever you have something new coming up, please come on the platform. We would love to talk to you.
1: Sounds great, brother. It was a pleasure. You keep the movement going and feel free to reach back out to me anytime
0: definitely will. Thank you. We are truly grateful for today's guest. If you are interested in becoming an approved Black equity strategic partner with this company or one in the past, simply send us an interest inquiry to the following email, djm at Once again, djm at let us know your name, your company, your services, and which guests you are interested in partnering with. As an approved partner, you will have exclusive access to our network and have first opportunity at future partnerships as well. Thank you for tuning in and be sure to join us on the next episode of the Black Equity Podcast.